0: This episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV with a special offer for you. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout for 30% off all plans. Welcome
1: to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. It's been a while since we had a bit of a round the table where I was involved. And one of the things that I've talked a lot about. On Network Break and over on Heavy Strategy podcasts, is the rise of the data processing unit or the DPU. Now, just to give you a, a sort of a potted history of where we are, we've often talked about network interface cards as the most important. And in the early days of networking, you know, at a 10 meg NIC, it was very difficult to get a working NIC and a working software driver. And over the years, we saw NICs basically become commodity items and they became very standardized and shipped in volume and they weren't very good. So, you know, various brands of NIC. Cards were built into the motherboard, but they were obviously mediocre. For a long time, we've had smart NICs, and smart NICs have been basically accelerated NICs, usually using a custom ASIC to accelerate certain networking functions. Sometimes required drivers. Sometimes the ASICs were particularly designed to automatically recognise what was happening in the operating system and accelerate those functions. I'm not. We're not talking about that generation of NIC or smart NIC or fast NIC or whatever you like to call it. I'm talking about DPUs. Now, DPU. I guess by my definition, and I'll throw this over to our guests in a minute, is a card that has a cluster of CPU cores, usually ARM, but a cluster of CPU cores and a memory set up, usually eight gigabytes or you know four gigs, 16 gigabytes, something like that, running an operating system of some sort with applications on top, and then an ASIC for very, very fast accelerated networking. So you get the best of both worlds. You get a software operating system. It's almost a computer in its own right. You could probably say it is. And the idea is, is that it approximately matches what a graphics processing unit is or a, t- a tensor processing unit, a TPU for AI, as an accelerator. So it becomes a network accelerator. So TPU, GPU, CPU, and now DPU. Uh, Peter, I'll throw it over to you. Just uh, You've been a long-time follower of the show, and you've done a, a bit of work around the DPU type of stuff. Does that make sense to you? Does that logic make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think... I think of it as a computer inside the computer, and so with that, I can either expose additional functionality to the host itself and say, hey, x86 CPU, you can now offload some of these functionalities onto me as a specialized card. Again, like you said, just like a GPU. The other Mm -hmm. thing that they can do that's very interesting is creating it totally isolated. So... um, the x86 CPU is just like, oh, I have a regular NIC in here that can't do anything else. But in reality, mm-hmm. something that can provide network policy or a security inspection or, um, you know, in- enforce a quality of service. I think a really simple example of that is like bare metal as a service where I want to give you a full server. You can do whatever you want to it. I don't have an agent on it or anything like that, but I still need to enforce. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a tenant kind of thing or I want to enforce QoS or something like that without having Mm. to touch a top of rack switch.
1: And you also don't wanna touch the CPU. So there's a version of VMware vSphere coming where the hypervisor runs on the DPU, leaving all the CPUs free to be VMs. And apparently this is a significant saving in processing performance because the hypervisor doesn't need a lot of CPU, but it does need to interrupt the CPU. And by running it outside of it, also increases the security of the system because it's no longer accessible to the code.
2: Yeah, and I think you know part of that's just the novelty of the fact that you have usually an ARM CPU on that, and so mm. um, it's a different you know binary execution environment that's not impossible to overcome. Um, but that's one simple little speed bump that can be in the way. Um, but the other thing is a lot of these DPU's uh, come with additional, say, accelerators or hardware capabilities. Um, So Mm. whether that's like uh, hardware-based regex uh, engines or hardware-based crypto modules or um, hardware-based, say, packet filtering. So then I can do something like do server-to-server crypto communication and offload all of that from the x86 CPU. And if you look at something like VMware, I think there's a lot of interesting work that could be done where you have NSX Mm. as the controller. It knows where all the endpoints are it can then build, say, dynamic VXLAN tunnels that may or may not be encrypted. And all of that work comes off of the x86 CPU and lives on that DPU now.
3: So before we get too far down the road, I want to just ask you both, is there really a material difference between SmartNICs and what we're now calling DPUs, IPUs, or is this more just a marketing spin?
2: I it's, think it's SmartNIC++. Um, so <laughs> um, <laughs> if you look at, say, the, the NVIDIA DPU, it is a full... ConnectX NIC inside of there. So it's a full Mellanox NVIDIA Smart NIC. And then they are adding on a whole compute subsystem um, connected to it. So there's like a little PCIe bridge inside of there. So it connects one that goes down to the motherboard of the server, and the other one goes to the ARM CPU and its whole set of stuff, like those hardware accelerators and the memory Hmm. and the operating system that Greg described. So um, it it is a superset. Uh, of of the smart nick.
3: Okay. So we are looking at increased functionality in part because of that additional onboard compute capability.
2: Exactly. And and I think it also creates this, you know, increased capability, uh, but it's also increased power, increased heat, and increased (laughs) price. And so I think that's always one of the (laughs) questions is um, you know, these things do a lot of cool cool stuff. Does it do whatever that cost increases, you know, 30, 50 hundred percent more per card is, is the return on investment there. And I think that's a company by company basis. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think, yeah, as I, I think that the story here is that a smart Nick that had an ASIC on board that was doing networking functions, a DPU is a, a significant step forward. Cause it actually has, adds almost a whole computer, CPU, memory and can run an operating system and apps. And I think that's the direction that we're headed is the DPU is actually a standalone computer inside the server. And it what it does is allows hypervisors to run in the DPU. Now that's not here yet, but that's I think where we're headed. So if you're a cloud, you know, mega scale cloud provider, if you're an AWS or an Azure, you're using a hypervisor which is currently boots off a a remote drive. And that goes through, you know, some sort of smart neck to improve the speed, but it still relies on the CPU to boot and to do all the IO processing and to boot the OS. And whenever it has to switch to the hypervisor, it has to pause the CPU, switch memory modes, uh, you know, switch memory locations, run the hypervisor code and then come back. It also means the storage engine is not accelerated. And we're also seeing suggestions that the DPU will become a storage accelerator card as well, but maybe that's a discussion for later on. Aaron, you're more into the programming side or the coding side. Is this how you, is that, am I right in that sort of assumption?
4: Yeah, I, I see DPUs more as, uh, at least from an aspect of trying to justify that that additional cost that, that Pete had mentioned earlier, you know, it, is it worth it? And I think your workloads or your architecture has to really see an advantage of having a whole new cache hierarchy separate from mm-hmm. your, your generic compute. And I think uh, if you have one that's sophisticated enough, and certainly one, uh, like anything, hardware is great, but if the software interface to it uh, stinks... To put it politely, then you'll you'll mm. never get to uh, bask in the glory of that great hardware, right? And so, with these DPUs, uh, I th- I feel that maybe some of the first uh, forays into that that weren't hyperscalers or maybe more geared towards the enterprise um, didn't have a great time with with the interface to those, despite the fact that some of them are designed with quite a bit of of of, uh, of oomph behind them. So. Uh, mm. I I I would like to see more of an independent kind of software vendor ecosystem um, to really validate that these cards are th- these are these are flexible offloads. You know, they're actually doing data processing as appo- opposed to SmartNIC. Part due. so
1: are one of the things that I think you're alluding to is the fact there was a company called Pensando, which has now been acquired by AMD, and mm-hmm. their approach was that the SmartNIC was proprietary. It was theirs. And they had an operating system on it. And all they published was some APIs that they uh, allowed you to use. So, but otherwise they would provide all the fun. And they had a controller function, an app above that, that did all the solid. So they weren't producing a smart w- with an open. They were producing a very closed ecosystem. Would you agree with that?
4: Right. Yeah, they were basically providing what what is ultimately a programmable uh, a chip, a programmable uh, mm. Accelerator card, but they were providing profiles. Right, T- turn the knob. Mm. Uh, the, this it looks like this one way, it looks like that another way, and here's a third one. Um, and and not providing. I, I think again that these things, in order to really see the value in in getting more of your generic compute back, whether that's interrupts or memory bandwidth or things of that nature, um, you have to really be able to uh, squeeze all of the lemonade out of those lemons. Uh, um, to Hmm. to make it worthwhile because if you're only utilizing 20 30 percent of the the space uh uh, and the heat that these cards are are sucking down let alone whatever four figure price per port they may have uh it's a it's a tough argument Uh, i think it's a tough argument Hmm. to make to uh to a lot of folks
2: and i'll say i think there's also um like a tco or a OpEx component there um you know i think and garen's exactly right you know you've got to Really squeeze the the power and the capabilities out of these cards to make it worth it. But the flip side is, um, in the Pensando model, you know you might not squeeze as much out. But you have a much simpler operations. Um, yeah. You have a much simpler operations uh, because they have that controller to do fleet. You know the f- whole fleet of DPU management for software upgrades and patching and yeah. Yeah, configuration. Yeah. The flip side is, if you have a DPU that's just running a standalone OS, you know have twice as many Linux boxes to provision to manage to patch and uh honestly to you know get pwned um and so like (laughs) you you kind of have to pick your poison
1: yeah i i think the pensando idea would have made sense to the enterprise because they would have wanted um a dpu that was administered in some way that it was packaged up in and bundled together not disaggregated whereas Many of the other DPU makers have gone for a disaggregated approach, like, oh, we're making the hardware and we're working with partners to provide you with operating systems and drivers and different things. And there's lots of different ways you can use it, but we're not really dictating to you how to do that. And I'm not sure that the markets yet decided which way to go with that. The Pensando model was very much about a cloud subscription and per license, per feature licensing. And you know, every time you turned around, you needed a license for something. Whereas the other way is, you know, buy our card and then let's work together to see if we can find a use for it. Is that unreasonable?
2: I think it's spot on. And I think there's also, Mm. you know, devils in the details there where in that disaggregated uh, model, it's like bring whatever you want to the party and we can figure it out. And then you start looking and you're like, oh, you actually only support this version of Linux or this set of patches to build your software on. Or, Mm. hey, you can run the Palo Alto agent on the DPU for you know, inline firewalling, but you also can't run the F5 load balancer at the same time. Um, yeah, or you can run
1: the fire- firewall, but not the threat detection. In it, which exactly. case, what's the point? <laughs> you know, yeah, something.
2: and so, like, there, there becomes this, like, compatibility matrix that gets really, really complicated, and it's unclear to me if that's a result of the, us being early days still, and they're working mm. through that, or that's just a consequence of this system, and, you know, the the reality and the vision may not totally align in the long run. I, I, I'm unsure.
4: Yeah, I was, I was just hoping that, you know, hopefully the market doesn't converge on something that looks like an iDRAC card for, for networking, right? Or, or we've somehow stuck a third IPMI BMC in the, in the servers and, and we're just, as, as Pete mentioned, administering another Linux box. I, I think that... Not to beat on my own point again, but that that's why I think the interfaces have to be something a little more comprehensive uh, than either here's a three course menu or you know good luck with the standard uh, network uh, Linux interfaces, right? I, I think to to Greg's point, in order to speak to the enterprise, there has to be something in the middle. I don't think uh, many many folks, if they are sophisticated enough, have the time or space to be sophisticated enough. To really make that difference and and that's where yeah. that risk comes in if you scratch the surface then you realize wait i can't actually run what i was dimensioning or hoping to offload et cetera, et cetera. how how many folks have that sophistication to prevent uh that kind of outcome or, or going too far down okay. the line right
1: um so so one of the things that i was thinking about if i was a vendor making a dpu card which would be hardware centric And if I was targeting the enterprise, I might be looking at VMware and what it's doing with NSX and saying DPUs are for that. And I don't really need to do any more than that. And if I'm going to sell DPUs to, say, cloud companies, they're going to write their own code. They're not going to look at buying somebody else's code. They would much rather write their own. Um, Is that a viable argument? Is it the sort of thing where people are saying, I just want the card and I'll run it on top so vmware will be able to say i can approve this dpu from intel this dpu from nvidia this dpu from amd and i guarantee that my nsx will run on this model this version and they'll have the you know the secret priests in their blessed room approving and validating the card to work with their their software or something is that the way it's going to go
2: i think it's a way it will go um i I think there's uh, I think, number one, again, the devil's in the details where you're like, okay, you put a DPU in a server and VMware runs on that card and everything's great. And then you scratch the surface and you're like, oh, VMware actually requires specific server SKUs to be able mm. to do this today. Um, so yeah. you can't take what you've got in the rack today and put a DPU in it and run VMware offload. You're going to have to go buy the right server to do it, which is kind of defeats the whole point in a lot of ways. Um, but I think more than that, you know, you're now buying hardware for a specific software application and you're kind of locking yourself in. Um, you know, what about non-DMware yeah, but that's VMware what we workload? had with
1: GPUs all those years ago. You think about GPUs 10 years ago, when you bought a GPU, you had to get drivers from a third party. And then that's why eventually we saw, you know, companies like NVIDIA and AMD develop their cards and start providing the drivers because that was the only way customers would consume it. I think that's what'll happen eventually. But for now, they'll try and sell them like here you go, here's the card, thanks very much, dust the hands off and go you know, off to, to the distance sort of thing.
2: Well, I, I think it's, um, like I said, it's, it's not about the software problem. It's the fact that I cannot take a DPU and VMware and put it in a, in a generic system. I have to buy a specifically no. certified hardware server from Dell, for example, that is you, whatever they call it, VMware certified for DPUs um mm. and only only those will support that VMware Monterey capability today and that might change in the yeah. future but that's that's where it is today but again i think there's a challenge in which let's say i go and get these systems or or we're in the future where it doesn't matter i can run vmware on these cards well if mm-hmm. vmware goes away or i want to move away from vmware what value can i get out of these cards and if i am say um a CTO or, you know, a VP of infrastructure, I, I would be a little bit hesitant to spend, to do this big, huge increase in spend that is directly tied to a piece of software. And if we get... A, okay,
1: give you, let me give you an an, out, an extreme counter argument. What we're seeing right now is Dell Apex and HP GreenLake. Are you familiar with those programs? I'm not Where, really. Yeah, they're subscription-based infrastructure. So you sit down with HP or your Dell sales rep and you agree that you're going to buy a license to run 500 VMs and Dell or HPE via their Apex or their GreenLake products says, okay, and we'll supply uh, this amount of storage and this amount of servers and we'll just charge you per VM. And when you want to light up another VM, you just light it up the licensing. And at the end of the month, you pay the bill and you're actually getting very cloud-like capabilities and they will continue to ship in more hardware as you continue to need more storage or consume more storage, they'll have more capacity there ahead of your consumption needs. In their case, it might be worth their time to put a DPU in so that they could ship less hardware, get faster networking. Every server becomes storage capable. Uh, They can provide any features on any server and they might well be able to eat the cost of a card just to be able to have a standardized infrastructure that is fast and uses less hardware overall.
2: I would absolutely believe it's a great model and would make a lot of Mm. sense. And I think that it it highlights where I believe the success in DPU is um, there are going to be a variety of use cases that are wildly successful. And each one of those is going to be an island. Um, And and what I mean by that is you're gonna find that what you just described, I'm renting my hardware and I'm doing VMware. This makes a ton of sense. why wouldn't I do it? Oh my God, this is amazing. Or I'm- And then there's gonna
1: be high performance compute. They want to do exactly. 100 gigabits like per second or 400 gigabits per second attached servers and run them floor to the wall, you know, you know, flat out all day, 24 hours a day. They're going to yep. be wanting them.
2: Yep. yep. Or like an HCI environment. Uh, I don't know if that's still a term anymore, but, you know, these hmm. cards can do a bunch of fancy storage offload. So for my storage clusters, I'll put these cards in and it'll make a huge difference. And the return on investment is absolutely there. But there's a big difference between, you know, putting them in my storage clusters or my HPC in clusters and putting it in every server. And I think that... Yeah, that I was, I was thinking of some part. of the...
3: Pete, Pete are you uh, just crushing the dreams of a bunch of VPs at hardware companies saying that DPs are going to be a niche market?
2: I think it will be a niche market unless these uh, these organizations, these companies can go and make a billion use cases. You know, it, it has to become the next x86 Instruction set where if there's going to be if the company is going to dictate what can run and how it can run, you're not going to see success, or you're not going to see you're not going to see
1: innovation. Yes. Exactly.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like I need to be able to but, get you know a card in the hand of somebody like Aaron and have him build his own custom application that is amazing, and then move a thousand cards that way, and then get a card in the hand of Drew and he comes up with some different application, and then I move another thousand cards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by having over and over again, all of these different places where innovation can happen and where applications Mm. can be built that leverage something and having that flexibility, I think that's the only way that you're going to see these proliferate to Mm. be every network port in the enterprise.
3: But isn't that sort of the whole goal of having this uh, offload on this card in that I've now got a whole bunch more compute to do networking functions, security functions, storage functions, policy functions, whatever, uh, without... Hitting that CPU, which seems like a huge fertile field for independent software development.
2: That's that's the thing. Is it is if you can program it. Right? Uh, I think this okay. Is, you know, <laughs> so that's where we can in. probably talk talk more about that. But you know, what are those? What are those software libraries? What are those SDKs? What's exposed? You know, there might be you know this super magical, amazing you know hardware capability, but if there's no software interface for me to poke that piece of silicon, mm. then it doesn't matter.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Project Monterey from VMware, which is about consuming DPUs to accelerate NSX functions. Its problem is, what APIs do I call? And they don't want to be stuck with what we have with Broadcom today and switches. Everybody's using the Broadcom SDK to talk to the Broadcom ASIC. But that also means that if you want to adapt to Marvell or, you know, any other brand of, of switching ASIC from any other vendor, you have to rewrite your entire code base virtually. And you know even though sonic has some abstraction there's a whole bunch of limitations there you've done a lot of that haven't you and you wouldn't want to end up in the same way that switch code and switch noses you know every switch is different and the, the sonic for each one is not quite the same and things like that
4: right exactly i think that's why we see a, a lot of folks even with the the sonic project and sai we we see a lot of folks trying to either converge on on a lot of the standard interfaces for better or worse that are included in the linux kernel uh netlink is an obvious example uh in order to drive these things in a more generic way i think for the dpus to to pete's uh discussion on the software and and a wide spectrum of solutions that that these cards can and should accelerate um there has to be some kind of middle ground i i don't want a smaller server on a pci stick Uh, just to run another version of Linux and hope that you've given me a few GPL-compliant modules for the special sauce for Regex or crypto accelerators. Uh, Cavium Octeons are very powerful chips. If you get an opportunity to look at the SDKs or some of the documentation, they have quite a bit of features. But unfortunately, for whatever reasons, the APIs or the SDKs that were provided to companies like Ubiquity uh, that use these chips, or Palo Alto... Um, not too many of them squeezed as much out of them uh, because of the difficulty of of, of yeah. using these APIs uh, yeah. for whatever reason verbosity it didn't work. Uh, hardware companies are notorious for being terrible at software, <laughs> right? Um, and and so in this case, in order to really maximize and see DPUs get value for both the end users and to move units to to justify all of this hoopla, so to speak. Um, we we need some way to to be able to have more of the market come with solutions and and I think you know I, I can sit here and talk about P four and the and the uh, the 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 PNA the uh, the, the programmable network adapter uh, architecture that tries to do the same thing that that we've done with switches and have a, a generic uh, uh, architecture for what what a, a host based accelerator would look like. Obviously, that's more packet and network as opposed to storage and maybe security acceleration things of those nature but without the software interfaces without the right uh inclusiveness of 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 more both customers and suppliers people that can come with with solutions this is going to end up being niche this is going to be you know voodoo voodoo 3 fx for quake it's not going to uh (laughs) it's not it's not going to have the penetration that i think a lot of these hardware vendors are hoping for
0: Let's pause the podcast for a quick word from sponsor IT Pro TV. In my career, certification is how I kept improving my job situation and compensation, and IT Pro TV offers training to help you do the same. There are a couple of strategies that you can take with certs. You can skill up in an IT niche that you really like. For example, maybe networking is your thing. Okay, start with associate level certs and then you go deeper with professional level. Another strategy is to widen your skill set. Maybe you've not done much with security, but you're interested. Great. Take some cybersecurity courses and start passing CERT exams, which makes a lot of sense as there's a big industry need for security professionals right now. Whatever direction you want to go. IT Pro TV's rich library of training material has you covered, offering instruction from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training taught by hosts who go out of their way to make it interesting. The course library is well-organized, and you can watch whatever you want on whatever device you have handy whenever you like. So whether you're starting out or skilling up, you can learn IT, pass your certs, and make your first or next career move with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash Packet pushers and use promo code PacketPushers at checkout. And one more time, itpro.tv slash Pushers. Use that promo code PacketPushers at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now, let's return to today's episode. So do you feel like the, the way,
3: based on what you've seen of the hardware, that the vendors are trying to play sort of a Broadcom-esque game where, haha, we can sell more of our chips if we really tightly control the SDK as opposed to sort of, you know, the Intel CPU thing where we want as much software to run on this as possible by design, or is it just because this is a new technology, they're still trying to figure it out?
4: It's probably a mixture of all of those. I think from, from my more secondhand or direct experience, it's been a more of, well, you know, this is our special sauce and only we know how to mix it into the ingredients properly. We, okay. we couldn't possibly let mm-hmm. you in the kitchen, you know, even though I've got mm-hmm. a whisk and, and a chef's hat on, I'm ready to go.
3: So, uh, to leverage yeah. all of the special features we've made with this hardware, we need to get into that software realm which could complicate things for i s v. s and
4: right right. You can't come look behind uh what we've got the, behind the curtain because you're not sophisticated enough. that's only for our <laughs> hyperscalers
2: uh-huh. yeah. right. totally it's totally a bit like and if you <laughs> if you look at um Nvidia, what they've done is you know they have this thing called Doka, which is their mm-hmm. you know the marketing label for their software components yep. The flip side, AMD with Pensando have kind of, you know, gone quiet. I'm not sure what's going on with them. Um, But Intel on the other side, they've been doing this big thing where they're trying to standardize it. And the reason why is they want to take a little wind out of NVIDIA's sales for that. And so, you know, is the standardization coming from the smaller DPU player going to be the victor? Is NVIDIA going to provide enough value that it doesn't matter that it's proprietary? And I think part of that challenge is how much value is there? Um, You know, NVIDIA... You look at, say, CUDA for GPUs, and the GPU provides you so much value in something like AI or some of the capabilities that, you know, if I say, use my special library or don't get 300x return in performance, well, guess what? I'm going to use your special library. But <laughs> yeah. side, Well, Intel's
1: pushing their IPDK, right? <clears throat> which yeah, is the uh, yeah. open programmable. Yeah, there's a project called opiproject.org, where they're, which is, sort of led by Intel, but I think everybody's a part of it these days uh, where they're trying to converge on a, uh, on, a, on an open set. But I think they'll always, I mean, <laughs> NVIDIA and Qualcomm and Broadcom have all m- had great success in producing assets that anybody can use in inverted commerce, and then strapping proprietary software on top of them and then licensing that to keep control of what customers can use. And I think that's going to be the way that they're going to work. And Intel is the only company that's been much more open and said, well, we'll work with you to develop some sort of open software and we'll invest in that. And that's why you should use our chips. It'll be an interesting uh, thing to play out in the market.
2: And and without passing like a a, a morality judgment on that decision, I think that what will be interesting to see play out in the market is, again, if I look at GPUs and CUDA, again, if I use CUDA that only works Hmm. on NVIDIA GPUs, I get a multi-hundred X speed up. If mm. I use Doka that only works on Nvidia DPUs, I get a 3x mm. speed up, yeah. 5x speed mm. up. Like is that worth it? I I don't know. Yeah. I think that's one of the yeah. big questions out in the market.
4: Especially when it's it's pretty diverse. I mean, I can respect the the hardware designs in these DPUs. They are uh, most of them that I've seen at least from the white papers or the the slicks are are intelligently designed. They have good stuff in them, but Speaking to interfaces and software, there, there are other companies out there that are taking much more powerful uh, uh, FPGAs um, in the sense that they're not just reconfigurable, but they can start running firmware or gateware that's much more, yeah, it's F, it's flexible um, mm-hmm. in, in that sense. And running something like eBPF, which is kind of eaten the world um, with, with Cilium and their Kubernetes CNI and, and many other things, um, eBPF is kind of a, a interface is the wrong kind of word but it's a standard way to interact with standard Linux system calls and, and interfaces and if you can accelerate something like eBPF which is being written by everyone not necessarily with hardware acceleration in mind but if you can accelerate eBPF then the orchestration and the offloading story is one page one paragraph yeah. right and if yeah. you can start accelerating those workloads based on a more uh, commonly understood or utilized uh, language, you know, in this case, eBPF isn't necessarily domain specific like my love and joy P4, but it, in the sense that, okay, now now I'm, a, I'm, I'm an enterprise uh, consumer, maybe I'm sophisticated or not, but if I'm just looking at interfaces and software engineer development time and risk... I'm going to go put my eggs in something that looks way more like eBPF rather than Doka. And to to Pete's yeah. point, the GPU market is much more mature. There's two very clear winners or two very clear major players. The DPU market's all over the place, and they have competitors. FPGAs haven't been count out.
1: I, yeah. think it's, I think that's an interesting one because I sometimes wonder if sometimes we talk about putting containers on top of Sonic on top of a DPU. And the idea would there be that a vendor could come along using a standard set of APIs. And, you know, that may be EPBF and IPDK, DPDK, P4, you know, a whole bunch of standard APIs that are sort of exist in open source to be able to, and maybe there's some new emergence of, you know, some more APIs that are laid to do layer seven functionality or whatever it might be. Um, would it help if we had a standard operating system on the card or should it be, you know, VMware's got NSX, it's going to load. It's whatever operating system it chooses and, and takes it from there. <clears throat> um, is there a choice oh, there or would we rather have a general open source?
2: I, I think that's solving for the wrong problem. So I think, you know, hmm. again, like let's treat it like a computer. Whatever runs on that CPU architecture, run it, right? If it's hmm. Debian, if it's Ubuntu, you want to run Windows on this thing, God help you, but, you know, be my guest. <laughs> um, yeah. You're... Your your Windows on the DPU money spends just as well at the vendor as anybody else's. Um, <laughs> but I think it comes yeah. back to, you know, what Aaron was hinting at, which is what, is what is the accelerator component? How do I program that? And I think that uh, there's a huge value in taking existing software things, right? Whether I'm building a route in the Linux kernel or an eBPF filter rule in that Linux kernel or... You know, anything like that and being able to natively just say, well, i run it in the cloud and it's a VM and it's x86 and I get acceleration and then I bring it into my enterprise and I put it on the DPU and it just magically goes much, much faster because it's hardware offloaded as opposed to where we're at today with everybody that I have to basically port my eBPF application to some custom C library that only works on that vendor's DPU and all of a sudden, yeah, like, well, wow, that sounds really hard. And is again, is the return on investment worth it to do all that work? Maybe not. So,
3: given all of the things we've been talking about in terms of constraints, the accessing the hardware via software, the the power consumption, the oper- the operational costs. Who do you guys anticipate that this new this this emerging DPU category is for at the outset? Because we're seeing a ton of money being spent on marketing and promotion of these things, and presumably, they have a market in mind. Who who is it? Exactly.
2: I think um, I, I kind of break it up into like number one of the hyperscalers. They're obviously sophisticated enough. They have the skill set enough that it doesn't matter how hard it is. They will figure it out and get the most value out of it. Uh-huh. And they can bend the vendors over to make it work, right? <laughs> if they don't like a library, they'll just beat up the vendor until they get a better library. Uh-huh. So I think that's, you know, one big chunk. I think the next big chunk are the software the software vendors that are going to build solutions on top vmware palo alto um you know fortinet whoever that is um you know providing those solutions on top but again their willingness to buy in is going to be directly uh related to how hard is this to develop for Mm -hmm. because if palo has to go and spend a ton of development cycles to port their thing to get it accelerated what's going to be the return are they Again, are they going to be able to convince customers to pay 3x for a card to run Palo's, you know, offloaded firewall versus just running on x86 and now I don't have to have special hardware? Um, I'll stay
1: with my hardware, sell my firewall hardware, and make mm-hmm. Buku bucks out of that, right?
2: Yeah, and this, this comes back to, I think there's a, a bit of a chicken and the egg in which those software vendors want to be able to build their application to run on a DPU. And they want that to be everywhere, right? I don't want you to have two DPUs sitting at the edge that look just like a hardware firewall. Like I want you to be able to run this thing on every server, so I can sell you, you know, forty-eight times the number of licenses. But you know, that's the chicken. The egg is well. I as an enterprise, I'm not going to go buy a DPU for every server yet because mm-hmm. nothing runs on it. <laughs> and so you know, we get stuck in this loop. But I do think that the the DPU uh, company that makes the makes it the easiest to run as many arbitrary applications as possible, right? I think a big part of the problem is that the DPU vendor has to be in that loop today, as opposed to say Linux. Like I just build an application and it runs on Linux because it's Linux,
3: uh-huh.
2: right? We need something similar in the DPU space, and I think you're going to see a huge explosion there because now I, as an enterprise, I'm going to put one in every server because Maybe this is the VMware server and it gets VMware acceleration. Maybe this is my VNF server and it gets VNF acceleration. Maybe this is my HCI storage server and it gets storage acceleration. You know, I don't want to, have to hmm. think about how to like bespokely deploy an application or a VM. You know, I want some uniformity there. That only works if my applications can leverage whatever hardware is underneath.
1: Yeah. I like for example, There's a I saw somebody on the internet they were taking a PlayStation something or another. Uh, and they put a DPU in there and then pre-configure the DPU in a windows box to run as an NVMe interface and just present to the PlayStation, a network connected storage thing as though it was a local drive. And all of a sudden the PlayStation five had, you know, 15 terabytes of storage inside it. And he was all jumping around very excited and (laughs) feeling like he'd just invented something. Right. Um, But that idea of, you know, configuring a DPU as an NVMe over to an NVMe fabric, somewhere out there, there's a storage array, and then you put it in the server, and all the services is a locally connected drive. That's a nirvana for certain applications.
2: Yeah, but that's the problem, though, for certain applications. And so I think the (laughs) DPU, like, without a doubt, has incredible value. The question is, is that value universal? And I think today... It's not universal, and that—that that to me is the question: Are you going to have a certain specific cluster where you know, just like a lot of GPU deployments today, you're like, "These are our 24 GPU servers of 4,000," um, mm-hmm. or is it going to be universally valuable that you're like, "Look, everything, no matter what it is, what we run, can leverage this, right? Whether it's a storage node or it's whatever it is."
1: So the financial aspects of chip production are that you can't sell a couple of hundred thousand of these and be profitable. The success of GPUs in the early days was to sell them as artisanal high value one-off items to cut special computer people, you know, people who needed high power workstations, but they were never really profitable until they were shipped in every, every single machine like they are today. Basically every laptop has a GPU of some sort today. And that's when the cost per production, because Making chips is expensive and getting them produced, you know, once you've done down the intellectual property to design a chip and then run it onto the fab, then all your costs are sunk. So whether you make one chip or a million chips, the cost of production is still the same, more or less, not quite, but almost. And so you really want to have a situation where these are used everywhere. DPUs ship in laptops, as well as every desktop, as well as every server, because, and convincing customers to pay for them, but that also brings the unit cost down. But what you're suggesting is that in the early days, there's no way that's going to be going to happen because the use cases are going to be niched in in specific use cases, high high performance compute, storage offload, you're going to have some customers in low latency trading, there's going to be some customers who want to do four hundred gig line rate forwarding performance before that, you know at some point in the future the market breaks out and we get high volume production and the price drops down for everyday use. Is that yeah think- reasonable?
2: I totally agree with that. And I think there is an opportunity to um, smuggle them into the enterprise, Um, whether that's, um, you know, NVIDIA is doing some stuff uh, where they're putting GPUs and DPUs basically on the same PCB. And so Mm. you get one massive card and it has both a Mm. DPU and a GPU on it, right? And so now that might be an easier way to consume a GPU. And you're like, oh, well, I got this DPU thing in here, might as well use it. Um, I think the hmm. other possibility, and I haven't seen this yet, um, so this is all hypothetical, is um, firmware based uh, DPU slash SmartNIC. So if these things are just SmartNICs with compute attached to it, give me firmware hmm. that just turns off all the compute. So reduce the power, reduce the heat, reduce the functionality, hmm. but the cards in the system, and when I'm ready for it, I just install a new driver.
1: I guess there's an argument to be made that if you've got a a big GPU in a system, you've got probably doing a lot of network traffic, especially if you're doing AI and you actually want a DPU or some sort of network acceleration so that you're not relying on the general purpose CPU to do the networking aspect of it. And so putting it onto some of the more accelerated artificial intelligence or more of the advanced artificial intelligence engines makes sense just from a forwarding performance and then, as you say, maybe there's some extra functionality waiting to be activated in the future.
2: Yeah, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat that I am far from an AI expert before somebody sends some hate mail to, to yeah. follow up um, for what I'm about to say. Yeah. But there's also, again, the devil's in the details. Are you talking about training where you are like shuffling huge data sets back and forth constantly? You know, we yeah. actually have seen some of the storage offload capabilities of the DPU do dramatic speed ups of some uh, AI training models versus inference mm-hmm. where I'm just trying to like have a webcam tell me whether or not you know hot dog or not a hot dog. and
1: yeah uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, those are low this. those are low bandwidth environments, but that's where the volume is. And so that's that's again, the devil's in the details of whether or not that pans out,
1: yeah. I think mostly we'll see dpus associated with AI processing if you're doing an and you have a an AI cluster, so we have, companies out there making ai hyperconverged systems they ship the gpus and the and they're coming with dpus partly because you know they're running at 100 gig 400 gig those servers and as you say they're doing inference and building models looking at the data searching for patterns and rhythms and creating the models that abstract they're very networking intensive but once the models are developed you distribute the models to the edge and then it's a much simpler lower type of process i don't think well, I guess the other one is we're also seeing DPUs be picked up by some of the software router makers as a way to accelerate uh, hardware as well, like companies like Six Wind, for example. Have you looked into that, Aaron, about turning DPUs into very high-speed routers, very high-scale? Uh,
4: not, not in a horizontal uh, scalability sense, but I have, since I, I'm mostly, I'm almost exclusive in the service provider space. Um, I I have been getting a lot of folks that are more in the quote unquote edge area where they're very interested in having something that can do 200, 400 gigabits per second. Looks kind of like a a hardware switching ethernet ASIC, but they want to control. They want all a cart. They want more memory. They want more table memory. They want stateful type Mm. stuff. They'd like 16 or 32 arm cores, things of that nature. And I think um, maybe not so much a, a DPU on a PCI card, but more of a, um, uh, something that looks like a, um, a, a BNG to use the older term, um, that has, a, a, a deep mm-hmm. inside of it, um, to handle these kind of sub terabit, um, type locations. Um, I'm very old school. So I think of, of, uh, you know, stuff in the basement, active equipment in the basement, but in, in this mm-hmm. case, uh, uh they don't need 20 terabits per second. Switching, there there really isn't such a thing as a, a feature-rich 400 gigabit per second. Switching ASIC, there's very expensive, um, quote-unquote, routing ASICs that do 800 gigabits per second, but that isn't, there's, I feel there's, uh, in, in the service provider space at least, there's this small gap that FPGAs can't quite fill due to their price and complexity, And and I think there is quite a few places where DPUs could fill in there Um, But everyone's hesitant, not to loop back to what we've already discussed, but because of the investment in the software. What what do we have our precious software engineers spend time on?
1: So one of the things that I get a lot of press about is DPUs being used in 5G pops. So if you're creating a 5G tower, and in that tower, you're going to have a lot of software functions. So before, you would have had a a radio network, and it would have all been custom hardware, running custom software on custom silicon Now they're talking about as soon as the signal comes down from the antenna, you convert it into a digital signal, and then it runs into just a bunch of x86 machines that have software, digital signal processing, software this, and they lean into the DPUs for processing. They may use GPUs, whatever Um, they're talking about. Then you go into the, 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 the POP network where you do the access control. Is this a customer billing collection? inspection, are they part of the network? Whose network are they a part of? Do they need to go into a slice? And DPUs then start to become part of the MPLS backbone at that point. That's an angle that we're seeing very heavily pushed. I don't know how mature that market is, but that's a way to get scale. One of the challenges here is if the DPU market gets big enough, then the cost of DPUs comes down and more and more use cases can be found. And then the market pressures come around conformity and uniformity because then the volume's there. Is that make sense to you, Aaron?
4: Absolutely, I think that's what Intel's uh, plan is with with IPDK and, and their kind of open programming initiative in in homogenizing an interface to obviously their stack um, and their argument um, for what something should look like. But in in to to Pete's point of there are a lot of use cases, and we need to bring we need a big tent. We need to bring everybody to the table um, and not spend too much time thinking about well, which interface, which which horse should I jump on and and run the race with. And I think Intel's uh, idea of just having a big tent and having open interfaces out there and, and letting people in will certainly keep them relevant, I think, uh, in the DPU and in the acceleration space.
2: I'll also say, mm-hmm. Craig, I think you, you touched on a, on a point, You know, looking at service providers extending to the MPLS backbone. You know, when we think about enterprise, we're really thinking of it as a server context. I think there is yeah. a humongous network opportunity there um, because I like. Like I said at the beginning, these cards can run in a combined mode where, you know, x86 can basically say, hey, DPU, you do this work for me, exactly hmm. like a GPU would do. But there's an isolated mode where the whole operating system, all of its functions, all of its capabilities are completely isolated and invisible to the x86 host itself. So, yeah. you know, yeah. there's a huge potential where my top of rack switch moves into that network card And so I don't care if it's bare metal, I don't care if it's Kubernetes, I don't care if it's VMs, I don't care if it's Windows or Linux. Whatever's on x86 is the service problem. The network team can own that card, provision whatever, say, EVPN overlay they want, provision quality of service and ACLs there. And then, Hmm. you know, that actually radically transforms the data center network where I don't care what it is anymore. Because everything is just transit. Right. All of my intelligence yeah, yeah. is at the edge, which is, you know, that's what we've always learned and how to build networks. Smart edge, Or mm-hmm. core. The edge of the network isn't the tour. The edge of the network is the is the nick. Mm-hmm. And this actually creates that capability. And you know, I think there's somebody out yeah. there who is gonna say. It took me a while. EVM. I
1: remember Do you remember 802.1 BG and 802.1 bh where the I instead of doing networking in the server, they were going to do it in the switch. And this was an IT, IEEE standard so that packets would be tagged on the server and then sent into the switch. And then if they needed to, they'd route back up to the server or the switch. And so the, the network would actually contain all of the intelligence. And one of the lessons I learned from that is that you can't do that stuff in the network. It was a good idea. Now, I think it would have worked if if we could have got people to stick with it. But I don't think anybody was willing to say, no, 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 we want to do all this in the network ASIC except for a certain group of people who couldn't see the, you know, see the reality.
2: But right, and I think that this doesn't um, this doesn't change that because the network administrator controlling that NIC is just passing some VLANs up to the x86 host. Uh, it it acts just like um, a top-of-rack switch, right? Like, we're, we're never going to mm-hmm. live in a, in a nice kumbaya world where network and, and server people trust each other. This is never going to happen. So I think any architecture that, assumes that is bound to fail. But I think this is actually an architecture where you say, yeah, you don't have to trust each other because the server, the you know, the network person owns the NIC. And they get to control yeah. what X86 sees from a networking capability.
3: This goes back to our broader conversation of then the value proposition moves from the DPU itself up to that controller layer where the network operator is going to spend most of their time, the software layer.
2: Well that's um, there's like a deep networking Philosophy, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping there of like controllers versus controllerless? (laughs) Because the flip side is like I could use Ansible against these things. And sure, I have 48 times the number of EVPN endpoints as I did before, you know, from one switch to 48 servers in that rack. But if I can, you know, hit it with Ansible, then, you know, what's it matter?
3: Right, that's the thing. You're not going to be able, if we're going to exponentially increase the number of networking devices that's not something you manage with an Excel spreadsheet and the interior of your head. You, you need
1: software. To <laughs> exactly.
2: <help. laughs> exactly. And I mean, this is this is why automation started whenever it was, you know, a million years ago in the server space, because they're like, well, I have 48 times the servers as you do switches. Like I right. I need a better solution. Yep. Um, mm. you know, maybe this is one of the things that drives drags networking kicking and screaming into the future.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because the network is then present inside every server, at least even every physical server. And to some extent, like if you look at what service mesh does, it actually puts the network into every container. I would say that service meshes is the prime application for DPUs. The idea that that overlay can be fully hardware accelerated, encrypted, uh, configured, monitored, observability, packet logging, you know, all that stuff that they do in general purpose software for a service mesh can all just be dropped off into a hardware and accelerated and, and to be very useful compared to what we do today
4: yeah it it feels like a hardware manifestation of the of the sidecar the the kubernetes sidecar proxy type model where yeah you can in in my opinion you're taking away the the host stack from from the software developer and and that's a good thing it's not taking away a, mm. a, a toy or or preventing them from doing something i don't think many software developers really want to deal with the host networking stack beyond opening a socket or you know sending mm-hmm. datagrams out right and to mm. to Pete's point If we can extend the network and the smartness to the edge and we can take away some of the problems or some of the abstractions that leak through to software developers and and not only offload them but you know make them more efficient and take them away and give someone a more consistent interface because from my understanding you know the containers that that take advantage of sidecars in these service meshes it's it's a generic http or grpc type proxy and not so much the application developers aren't really interacting with it. They're aware that it's there, but they're not their code base or their application isn't actively uh w- communicating back and forth with it. And with a DPU in in a server, in in some sense, we're taking away the host stack and and being able to control that better to to
2: give a better experience for whatever workloads are running on there. Mm-hmm. I think one more to uh the sidecar though, as it comes back to what we're talking about earlier, is I'm gonna go build something for Kubernetes and a CNI, and that absolutely has to run in cloud and get accelerated, right? I think that's the eBPF thing. And if I'm going to bring that in-house and put it on Metal, um, I'm not going to rewrite it. I'm not going to build two different networking applications. And so until those DPUs can just, you know, take the same application, just make it go faster, um, I I think there's going to be a struggle to see that adoption. And and that's where, again, I think that big event, as Aaron mentioned, um, becomes super important.
1: And of course, AWS has been running DPUs for some period of time, their project Anaconda and their ability to use, you know, that silicon to give a competitive advantage. And AWS has shown no signs of being very interoperable with third parties. It would much rather see itself as so far ahead of anybody else. They don't have to be open open standards or open integration um, as a general rule. So... I don't think we'll see AWS lean into the open standards around DPUs. Of
2: course. I mean, they they bought uh, Annapurna Networks however long ago just for DPUs, yeah. right? So so they've been doing their own thing for, for years and years. Um, I think what'll be interesting mm. is if um, I'm not aware of any other hyperscaler with, a, with their own custom DPU-like chip uh, or card, and so it'll be no, interesting no. to see, you know, does Facebook and Google decide to tag team and bully the market into standardization i, I, I don't know
3: or microsoft does another and sonic and says we're doing it this way and we have a lot of power so a lot of mm. other people say yeah we're just going to ride this train with you
4: well i know in azure for some of their vnet accelerations i don't know if it's old news if they continued it or or sunset it but they did have uh, ocp uh, compliant fpgas um mm. in their yeah in their oh driving, accelerating at least their network functions from, from their hypervisors in Azure. But that, that may be five-year-old information at this point.
1: There was an announcement this week, I want to say, this week, or two, in the last weeks, that uh, Google had partnered with Intel to provide them with a DPU. So some form of the Intel Mount Evans project, which is the IPU project they've got going, is now partnered with Google. So they may start using that DPU going forward and may lead to something useful maybe
3: and i think the larger point is that there are hyperscalers and bodies like the open compute project the linux foundation where hyperscalers can take work that benefits them uh, on their own bring it into an open space to get adoption because that also benefits them that may in the long run help us figure out this we need a common you know sort of software abstraction layer to really wring the benefits out of dpu on a wide scale
2: and i think that um I think that also touches on a huge risk here, which is um, if these DPU vendors mess it up, the hyperscalers hyperscalers will do it themselves, right. and you know yeah. none of that trickle- yeah. that'll happen, and enterprise right. loses. That's um, true. So I think there's, you know, it is going to be in the the benefit of the broader ecosystem of enterprise that DPU folks kind of get in line and play nice for the hyperscalers. Otherwise, you know. You're going to have a Facebook special card and a Google special card and, you know, <laughs> it, it's going to be great for them and they're the only ones that are ever going to get it.
1: Yeah, and that's not going to see it fall down. And There's not going to be any trickle down either. It might just end up isolated around there. That's quite interested to see Google and Intel get together to start to to do a partnership because um, it sort of suggested that Google wasn't going to build its own hardware In this case. It was going to Intel's and there. About various open initiatives. Uh, so yeah, and that was only this week. so yeah,
2: and I mean, but it's still nascent, right? I mean, Google's Google built their own AI engines, um, I, I, mm. and I would venture to guess that's significantly more complicated than uh, a DPU would be. <laughs> um,
1: yes, you know, I. But I think Google's saying that the value of a DPU, you know, or the complexity of a DPU is not worth the effort to go and build one or be cheaping off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Mm, that would be the logic. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, and um, I wish we could keep talking because I think we may have to revisit this at some point in the future. Um, so, um, uh, Aaron, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet?
4: Uh, the best place to find me would be on Twitter under network service, um, both those words, fully spelled out, nothing uh, abbreviated. Um, and you can find my uh, practice at
1: predictedpaths.com. And Peter, where can people find you on the internet?
2: And you can also find me on twitter. on pete c c d e, and that's Charlie Charlie Delta Echo. Uh, and I will gladly uh, you know pound on the table and uh, uh, <laughs> complain loudly about uh, whatever topic du jour we we both get angry on Twitter. So. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> I, I I don't find myself getting angry on Twitter much anymore. like, Really? (laughs) So on that note, uh, Drew, thanks very much for joining us today. As always, you can find more information over on the Packet Pushes. We have a range of more podcasts that talking about these topics and trying to find options and thoughts about helping you to find the solution in your context. Um, You could even join our Slack group. It's open to everybody, even if you work for a vendor, no marketing is allowed. Um, Just be excellent humans and ask your questions and uh, please enjoy being there. And if you want to hear more, lots of other podcasts, just go into your podcatcher, search on Packet Pushers, and you'll find a bunch of different stuff. Uh, and we always include lots of interesting different shows covering a higher range of topic, and they're free, although there's some sponsorship in there, which we always tell you about because we treat you with respect. As always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.